This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, Dan Ambinter here. Welcome back to a Carter Nerds case report. This is a super special episode because for the very first time, we get to learn from colleagues from Leahy Medical Center as they present a very challenging case of acute heart failure. Stay with us. But before we dive into this episode, we are just so proud to introduce Dr. Carrie Mahirin as a Carter Nerds Fit trialist. As you know, the Cardinerds Clinical Trials Program was created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with fit personal and professional development. We have recruited 18 sites worth of incredible Cardinerds fit trialists and matching PI mentors to support Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. Cardinerds fit trialists are nominated by their site PIs for their interest in academic medicine, clinical research, and of course, their nerdiness. Dr. Kerry Mahiran was nominated by Dr. Peter Van Buren to represent the University of Vermont. Kerry, welcome to the Cardinals family. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience and tell us what you're excited about in joining this program? Yeah, thanks so much for having us here. Um, I am extremely excited to be here. Uh, background a little bit from Montana, moved my way to Vermont for both residency and stuck around um, out of choice for fellowship, mostly because of the people here. And I think the biggest thing I'm excited about for this CardioNerds Fit Trialist position is I've never really done a whole clinical trial or been involved in a clinical trial by myself. So I think it's really, it's kind of coming into this a little bit less daunting as a process and also coming in with 20 other sort of fellows that are along there with me, peers in all sorts of various varieties of where they've been and their experience. Um, and with those 20 other-ish fellows comes with 20 other plus mentors um, along with the CardioNerds family. So I'm really excited to be involved and sort of get a little bit of rub off from, from their experience and also to sort of figure out tricks and tricks of the trade and how to go about all this recruitment and clinical trial in general. Yeah, totally, Carrie. It's, uh, you know, as a fellow, there aren't that many opportunities to be so directly involved in the conduct of clinical trials. So that's a, a really special part of this. And, and a key facet of that is mentorship. And, and you talk a little bit about that is, you know, we're building uh, peer mentorship uh, from each other and then also from all of the PIs, side PIs, the steering committee members and other leaders within the trial. But, you know, you're right there with Dr. Van Buren, who very enthusiastically nominated you to represent the University of Vermont. I'd love to hear a little bit about what it's been like working with Dr. Van Buren in this capacity. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, Dr. Van Buren's been sort of a mentor of mine since before even the Cardiohertz came along, even in residency. I'm not even sure he knows that, but um, he definitely practices an open door policy around here. And our fellow room is right across the room, and I definitely have taken advantage of that, um, asking him questions on any sort of random day. I think I probably use that open door policy more than he was aware of, or more than he intended, I guess. Um, but he has been sort of a voice of reason and a voice of advocacy for for all of us fellows and sort of getting us involved in things that we wouldn't otherwise, such as this and other research uh, modalities and paths. And he's very much a, you know, as also APD, he's been a huge advocate for us as fellows um, with every sort of, I think, yearly complication that comes around. He sort of adapts and pivots and, and at least make sure that we're happy and healthy in what we're doing and still liking it. 
it sounds like it's a wonderful relationship and really that's what this is all about so it's just fantastic that you already have that with uh, dr van buren there so carrie thank you so much for being a part of the cardiac fit trials program and we're just so excited to work with you and um and looking forward to seeing what we'll get done together i'm extremely excited to be part of the nerdy family thank you <laughs> Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to a CardioNerds case report. This is a really special episode because for the very first time, we get to learn from colleagues from Leahy Medical Center. And this is doubly or triply or maybe even quadruply special because among our educators today are Dr. Ahmed Ghanim, one of our academy fellows, and he's done so extraordinarily well in helping us push forward the area of digital education and innovation that he was selected to be one of the chief fellows for the academy. So Ahmed, welcome to Cardio Nerds. And maybe in addition to introducing yourselves, because you are a Cardio Nerd through and through, you could welcome aboard your colleagues for us. Thanks, Ahmed, for this very kind introduction. Hi, everyone. I'm Ahmed Wanim, and I'm a second-year resident at Lehi. I'm from Alexandria, Egypt, where I also went to school, finished a cardiology residency, and spent one year as a faculty. I then spent a little under two years as a cardiac imaging research fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital before I matched into residency. And like Ahmed said, I'm extremely privileged to be a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow this year and will be staying in the academy next year as a chief. Outside of work, I enjoy going to the movies and spending time with my wife and eight-month-old Zane. It's a pleasure to be here today and thanks for having us. Now I have the pleasure of introducing my colleagues on this case, Dr. Sonu Abraham, who's a second-year cardiology fellow here at Lehi, and Dr. Amitosh Singh, who's a third-year medicine resident here at Lehi as well. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Like I'm a third, I'm Sonu Abraham. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow at Lehi Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts. Did my residency at St. Vincent Hospital in central Massachusetts. I'm sort of a third culture child. I grew up in India and then the Middle East and completed medical school in India and then moved here. My interests include medical education, heart failure, and critical care cardiology, and will be applying this coming year for heart failure fellowship. My most recent hobby is watching Formula One races and rooting for my favorite team, Red Bull. I also enjoy trying new cuisines and baking in my free time. Hi guys, I'm Amitot Singh. I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at Lehi Hospital, born and brought up in Punjab, which is a northern state in India. I did my medical school in there and then decided to come here to pursue my further studies. As an aspiring cardiologist who just applied for fellowship, I'm interested in all things related to cardiology with a special inclination for electrophysiology. Outside of work, I enjoy playing soccer and taking amazing New England fall photos with my drone. Oh my God, did someone say drone? I love drones. <laughs> I knew that was going to get you, Dan. I can't, I can't lie, that kind of got me too. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, Dan Amateur here, drone lover on the side. Amitosh, Sonu, Ahmed, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is really exciting and a long time coming. We are so excited to visit you in Boston on this beautiful fall, sunny Sunday. Take us to your favorite place so we can have a great session and talk about some serious cardiology. All right. We're going to take our listeners to the Barking Crab. It's in Seaport in Boston. 
Imagine yourself sitting on the deck right in the heart of the harbor, looking out at the Boston skyline, having hot, buttery lobster rolls, oysters, and steaming snow crabs. They have a fun bar and great music, and you can also throw crackers at hungry seagulls if you like that. That's my perfect candidate. Wow, Sonu, are you a writer by chance? Because you just essentially gave me this imagery, the, the smells, I, I feel the smells, I, I am seeing exactly where we are. There's just something that sounds like you're a writer or a poet. Yes, you are perfectly right. I do write poetry. I have my own blog. I also paint on the side. So that's just... Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, uh, ask Dan, like we've had so many people describe where we're going to hang out, but there was just something about the way you described it and use of adjectives that I just, I, I got that imagery and it's, it's a powerful writing tool. So did you know that? Did you I know did. That? I, I swear I did not know that. I swear that's to God. Amazing. <laughs> That's good deductive skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an idea. Why don't we turn our clinical reasoning from this logical deduction of people's hobbies towards a case? If someone, you prepared this case for us. Why don't we just dive right in? Sure. Uh, Amitosh, let's get started. Great. I'm so excited to tell you all about our case. From here on, we will refer to our patient by the pseudonym Mary. Mary presented with mild dyspnea on exertion and non-productive cough and was admitted directly from our outpatient clinic. She has a history of Hashimoto thyroiditis, nodular thyroid status post-reception, is maintained on levothyroxine, and has metastatic melanoma, currently on treatment with two drugs, namely ipilimumab and nebulumab. She has a history of obesity and had gastric bypass surgery done several years ago. Though she lost weight after the surgery, she regained a significant amount and was around 244 pounds with a BMI of 42 when we met her. She had sleep apnea prior to the surgery and was on CPAP, but told us that she subsequently improved. That's a great start, Anatoj. Almond, can you walk us through how you think about dyspnea in a cancer patient? Absolutely. I like to divide the causes of dyspnea in cancer patients into four big buckets. First, is dyspnea directly related to the cancer itself, such as any involvement of the lung parenchyma, pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, ascites, or even superior vena cava syndrome? Dyspnea indirectly related to the cancer, such as pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, or severe anemia? Dyspnea due to the cancer treatment, such as chemotherapy-associated pulmonary disease or cardiomyopathy, radiation-associated pneumonitis or pericardial disease, and finally, dyspnea unrelated to the cancer, which usually includes chronic diseases that may be exacerbated by the underlying malignancy, such as asthma, congestive heart failure, etc., or even ischemia and myocarditis. Apart from all of these, in the current times, we also think of COVID-19 pneumonia, particularly since she was immunocompromised. However, as I'm headed to assess the patient, I was thinking of the more serious causes and the signs I should be looking out for on my physical examination, such as any signs of DVT that could point to a PE, distant heart sounds, raised GVP, hypotension, or even a pulsus paradoxus that would make me suspect a pericardial effusion and a possible tamponade diminished or absent breath sounds, as in large pleural effusions, or our favorite clinical sign on the podcast, an elevated JVP and lower limb swelling that may point to congestive heart failure. Amitaj, can you tell us about her physical exam? Yes. Her vital signs showed a heart rate of 125 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 100 over 65, respiratory rate of 18 breaths per minute, and she was saturated 96% on room air. Positive findings on her physical examination included tachycardia with a regular rhythm, bilateral crackles up to mid-lung fields, and one plus edema around the ankles, but no redness or asymmetric swelling of her legs. She had normal heart sound, JVP was elevated at 12 centimeters, her exam was negative for a pulsus paradoxus. Great. Essentially, she is tachycardic, she's not tachypnic, and is not in over distress. 
Her exam findings are remarkable for signs of heart failure due to the bilateral crackles, raised JVD, and one-plus period edema. The lack of pulses paradoxes and normal heart tones at least rolls out cardiac tamponade to a considerable degree because pulses paradoxes has a sensitivity of 98% and specificity of 83%. Pretty good for a physical exam finding. Amitosh, what do you think would be your top differential diagnosis at this point? The tachycardia and fluid overload is what concerns me the most. My primary differential would be acute heart failure, but the cause of the heart failure will be an intriguing aspect, which we can think about later. Pulmonary embolism is in my differential, particularly because she has a history of cancer, which would make me suspect a PE, even though she's not hypoxic. My next thought is that she may have a pericardial effusion that is not yet causing a tamponade. I've seen this time and again in several patients with metastatic cancers who present with dyspnea and are then found to have a pericardial effusion. Since she had a cough, some lung findings, and is overall immunocompromised, I would think of pneumonia, including COVID pneumonia. But it is reassuring for now, given that she's not the kipnit or hypoxic. And lastly, because common things are more common, I would like to rule out severe anemia and thyroid derangements, particularly because she has a history of Hashimoto's thyroiditis and thyroid nodule resection in the past. She does not have any chest pain or prior history of cardiac disease, so for her current presentation, her overall likelihood of ischemia is low. Even STAD as an etiology is less likely, though her age fits the demographics. But since she is obese, I would keep ischemia in the back of my mind, especially since we know that women do not always present with cardiac chest pain. And a special shout out here to the new chest pain guidelines for taking out atypical chest pain from a cardiology lingo. Wow, those are some sharp deductive skills, Amitoj. So we have acute heart failure, pulmonary embolism, pericardial fusion, pneumonia, ischemia, severe anemia, and thyroid dysfunction as a primary differential. Let's go ahead and hear about the investigations we did. We began with an EKG, troponin, and BNP. Troponin I was very mildly elevated at 0.05, with our lab cutoff being at 0.03 nanograms per milliliter. BNP was elevated at 1058 picograms per milliliter. EKG showed nonspecific signs. The low voltage could be concerning for myocardial disease or maybe just indicate a distance between the leads and the heart, but it's still a nonspecific finding. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, and these are, for the most part, nonspecific findings. But, you know, it is concerning that she does have an elevated troponin in the context of cardiovascular symptoms and evidence of heart failure. So we're particularly going to be concerned and looking for evidence of myocardial injury and the consequences thereof. And yes, totally the low voltage in this EKG is nonspecific altogether. But we were talking about causes why a patient with cancer could potentially come in with dyspnea exertion. And we talked about pulses paradoxes and pericardial effusion, but certainly this is something that would be concerning for pericardial effusion and or just myocardial disease. So, I mean, what, what is the next step in terms of diagnosis and, and what would you be looking for? So our next step was to get some imaging studies. Our CT chest with contrast revealed no pulmonary embolism, mild pulmonary congestion, and no evidence of pneumonitis or pneumonia. An echo, however, showed a severely reduced left ventricular function with an estimated ejection fraction of 15% with global hypokinesis and no valvular abnormalities. The right ventricular size was normal with moderately to severely reduced function. Okay, so this is taking an interesting turn. Putting it all together, it looks like she has a new cardiomyopathy with biventricular dysfunction, which is causing pulmonary vascular congestion. She does not have a pericardial effusion, which is reassuring. A PE also has been ruled out. So why would Mary have a new cardiomyopathy? The first thing that would come to our mind is, is this ischemia? 
But like Amitha which mentioned earlier, she did not have any chest pain. There were no ischemic changes on EKG. Nor did she have a very significantly elevated troponin. She's also relatively young, has only obesity as a risk factor, and no family history of premature coronary artery disease. The other possibility is Minoka or SCAD, which we can keep on the back burner, but appears less likely. Overall, the likelihood of ischemia is low. Stress-induced cardiomyopathy is another possibility. Though she did not mention any significant emotional stressors, she does have physical stressors, particularly the cancer and her ongoing therapy. However, the echo did not show the classic findings of apical ballooning, most often seen in Takatsubo syndrome. Viral myocarditis is also an important differential to consider. The presence of a cough prior to her presentation may suggest a viral prodrome, but she had the symptoms only for a day and did not have any fevers, chills or myalgias. What about peripartum cardiomyopathy? She had a urine pregnancy test, which was negative, and has not had any recent deliveries. Usually, peripartum cardiomyopathy occurs in the third trimester, close to labor, and in the postpartum period. Rare causes like undetected infiltrative diseases like amyloidosis are unlikely, specifically because her echo did not show any left ventricular hypertrophy or speckled appearance you typically see in amyloidosis. The next step is to look at her meds. We should think of medication-related adverse events since she's on immunotherapy currently. This puts immune-mediated adverse events as the next differential. And from my understanding, a high degree of suspicion is required because missing this can have dire consequences. Exactly, Sonu. Spoken like a true detective. Thinking of all these differentials, we admitted her to the hospital directly from our outpatient clinic. Our initial working diagnosis was immune-mediated myocarditis because of the clinical context. All right. So let's delve a bit deeper into the diagnosis. Let's go back to her immunotherapy medications. She's on ipilimumab and nivolumab. Hard words to roll our tongues to, I know, but these are the most exciting drugs in the oncology world. So let's page oncology to help us nerd out on these immune checkpoint inhibitors. You guys, I know just the person to call. I'd like to maybe see if a Dr. Anika Balaji is available. Ring, 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 ring. Hello. Hey, Anika. Hey, team. How are you? Doing great. Hey, Anika, I know you're busy on the Ulcer Medical Service. Do you by chance have a couple of minutes to drop some knowledge bombs? Yeah, of course. I always have time for the cardio nerds and to talk about oncology. <laughs> great. So, uh, Sonu, Ahmed, and Amitoj, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you guys to Dr. Anika Balaji. Anika right now is an internal medicine intern at the Ulcer Medical Service in Johns Hopkins Hospital. But I had the pleasure of meeting Anika when she was my third-year medical student and then sub-I back when I was chief. And from the very beginning, she's just absolutely extraordinary. And I'm so glad she chose to go into medicine. Right now, with the interest in oncology, she has done so much work in the area of immune checkpoint inhibitors with several publications and poster presentations. She got a master's in public health along the way at Johns Hopkins. You know, I remember back in the day, Anika, if you, if you recall... You gave this great talk on immune checkpoint inhibitors and immune-related adverse events. I'm wondering if you could give us a primer relevant to this case. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. I will definitely talk about immune checkpoint inhibitors. I'm really excited about them, and I'll make sure not to go too much into the weeds with them. So immune checkpoint inhibitors are one of the newest and most effective drugs that are now part of first-line regimens for many different solid tumors, just like in your case, metastatic melanoma and also non-small cell lung cancer. Before learning about what these drugs can do, I quickly wanted to go over a normal immune response. The immune system, specifically T-cell-mediated immunity, is a powerful tool in the detection and removal of foreign cancer cells. 
So let's zoom in to the immune synapse. Let's get right in between a CD8 cell and an antigen-presenting cell like a macrophage. CD8 T cells are one of the immune system's main tools to remove infected or mutated cells. So activation of T cells essentially requires a two-factor authentication system to ensure correct recognition and targeted destruction. The first signal occurs when the antigen-presenting cell shows a T-cell a mutated protein, which in turn is recognized by the T-cell receptor and the CD8 receptor. The second signal occurs to confirm this recognition, and this occurs between the CD8 receptor on the T-cell and the B7 receptor on the antigen-presenting cell. After this, the T-cell can release molecules like perforins and granzymes, in addition to interferon gamma to induce target cell apoptosis. And the immune system inherently has these checks and balances. Therefore, normally after an apoptotic act, there are pathways to stop T-cell function. This is termed the immune checkpoint. And there are many different proteins involved in the immune checkpoint, but the two best studied are CTLA-4 and then PD-1 and its ligand PDL one Quickly, CTLA-4 competes with that CD28 protein, which is part of this T-cell's second signal, and binds with higher affinity to B7 than CD28 does, so it inhibits any further T-cell response and proliferation. PD-1, on the other hand, is expressed on activated T-cells, and when it binds to its ligand, PD-L1, on target cells, this induces an attenuation of the immune response. It's a little bit less robust than the CTLA response. And there are many different ways that tumors have evaded the immune system, but one of the more well-known mechanisms is tumor cells express PDL1 on their surfaces and can induce T-cell exhaustion and halt the immune system before killing can even begin. So, Anika, it sounds like T-cells are a major driver of the immune response to antigens. There's a delicate balance of T-cell activation versus inactivation. And determining this sort of seesaw balance, we've got proteins on the T-cell, the CTLA-4 and the PD-1, that essentially function as brakes on the T-cell. And the tumor cells have figured out how to use this to their advantage to escape T-cell recognition and activation and therefore proliferate without attack from the immune system. So how can we harness this biology to reactivate that immune system against the tumor cells? That's a great question. And in 2011, the first drug to do exactly this was FDA approved. Immune checkpoint inhibitors as a class are monoclonal antibodies that remove these built-in immune breaks. And there are now many classes of immune checkpoint inhibitors, but I'm going to focus on the most commonly used classes, the CTLA-4, PD-1, and then PD-L1. These antibodies inhibit the actions of CTLA-4, PD-1, and PD-L1. So by binding these checkpoint proteins, these drugs allow for a reinvigoration of the immune cell response. And something I like to remember is that in 2018, almost 44% of solid tumor patients had been treated with an immune checkpoint inhibitor at some point during their treatment course, compared to just 1.5% in 2011 when these drugs were first FDA approved. So given their widespread use in oncology, it's important to recognize that immune checkpoint inhibitors have a unique spectrum of side effects, and these are termed immune-related adverse events, or IRAEs. And IRAEs describe unchecked immune response in non-target areas of the body. The immune overactivation leads to inflammation, and in many cases, disease presentation similar to an autoimmune-like syndrome affecting nearly any tissue in the body, including skin, the pulmonary system, endocrine, GI, and cardiac systems as well. So overall, with ICIs, we're seeing effective and enhanced tumor killing, but unfortunately, this is sometimes paired with enhanced nonspecific cellular killing as well. 
Wow, Anika, that was such an incredible explanation. And I know that you've been oncology bound, but we cardioners could definitely use brilliant people like yourself for cardio oncology and whatever else you may be interested in. But hey, thanks for your time. You can get back to your work. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll catch up with y'all later. That was a great review by Anika. Like she mentioned, ICIs have drastically changed outcomes for cancer. But we know too much of a good thing is not always good, like the pumpkin pie I had this morning. <laughs> so naturally, the question that comes up is, if the tardive side effects are rare, why do we need to know about them? Let's talk numbers, my favorite thing. Immune checkpoint inhibitors have various forms of cardiac toxicities, but myocarditis is the most feared complication of them all. The overall prevalence is 1.2%, but can go up to 2.4% when used as combination therapy. But these statistics are possibly underestimating the true prevalence. The estimated rate of mortality in ICI-associated myocarditis is a whopping 38 to 46%. That's literally almost half. To add to these dismal numbers, the morbidity rates are not reassuring either. Approximately 50% of these patients with myocarditis develop heart failure, cardiogenic shock, complete heart block, or even cardiac arrest and ventricular arrhythmias. Wow, it sounds like once you develop an immune checkpoint inhibitor-related myocarditis, the prognosis is fairly bad. So can we rewind a little bit and get back to our patient? How confident are we at this point in the case that this is an immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis? Because like any myocarditis, it is a diagnosis of exclusion after we've ruled out, you know, either more common causes or other reversible causes. So, so how do we cinch this diagnosis and what are the steps that we take to hopefully avert some of these terrible consequences that Ahmed just outlined? So, well, we really did think about, you know, the other differentials in this case. And the first thing that we thought about was ischemia. But, you know, overall, her pretest probability was so low, considering that she's young, she's not had any prior events, does not have any family history. She did not have any ischemic changes on her EKT and did not have a rise and a fall on her troponin, which is usually what we see in an MI. So for this reason, we did not do further testing like a coronary angiogram or a coronary CTA because our pretest probability was so, so low. And then we went ahead thinking about other differentials. And, you know, still in our mind, we do have stress-induced cardiomyopathy because it is a diagnosis of exclusion. But we did not find any classic findings of apical ballooning or any other variants that we see in Takotsubo syndrome. So that was, again, something in our back burner. While myocarditis did stay in our picture, but, you know, she was not that sick. She did not look like she was having a viral protrol prior to this. And because, you know, we have to keep a very high suspicion for immune checkpoint inhibited myocarditis, we went ahead with this provisional diagnosis. And we did do further testing to make sure that's where we were going. Sony, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree in all comers, the first, second, and third diagnosis we need to rule out is coronary disease, not only because it is so common, but it is also actionable. And somebody coming with low EF would have a high risk manifestation. But for all the reasons you mentioned, I think it makes perfect sense that you were thinking predominantly about the non-ischemic causes. In, in terms of prioritizing the diagnosis, my, my approach is thinking about, okay, number one, what is the most life-threatening? And I remember that's what Ahmed was thinking about when he was headed down to see this patient. What's the most life-threatening? And then two is also, and there's some overlap in this. What are the diagnoses for which we have to take immediate action that would dramatically change your next steps? And immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis is one such diagnosis where it would drastically alter not only your approach to tumor therapy, but then also requires immunosuppression as well. So that definitely a diagnosis not to miss. And then you layer onto it the case fatality rate and the morbidity rate. We definitely can't miss this. So this makes a lot of sense. Where, where did you go from there in terms of further diagnostics? Or did you go ahead and you know treat this as such? 
Sure. Uh, before we get to that, there's something that, you know, we always talk about it in terms of these scary numbers that Amlet just mentioned. So there's this catchphrase that we use that for immune checkpoint inhibitor associated myocarditis, when in doubt, check it out. No pun intended. <laughs> so I wanted to go ahead and talk about the symptoms these patients present with and also whether there are any specific patients who are at high risk. So Amatoj, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So the clinical manifestations of myocarditis are heterogeneous. Patients can present with non-specific fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain or discomfort, myalgias to just name a few. But there are also reported cases of patients presenting with sudden cardiac death. So the key point here is that they present on a spectrum, which ranges from asymptomatic states with vague signs and symptoms to severe myocardial destruction yielding cardiogenic shock and arrhythmias. Hence the point of being vigilant for ICI myocarditis due to its non-specific symptomatology and fulminant progression. I agree. A high degree of suspicion is key here. But we don't have to think, are there any patients who are at a higher risk? Can we identify them earlier and keep a closer watch on them? The answer is yes. People with pre-existing diabetes, obesity, and autoimmune disease do have a high risk. There is a suggestion of an association between pre-existing cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension and smoking with the development of ICI-induced myocarditis. However, pre-existing coronary artery disease was not identified as a risk factor in this study. I honestly think we need more research in this field to identify other risk factors. The type of immune therapy is also important. Anti-CTLA-4 therapies associated with a higher prevalence of cardiotoxicity than the PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors. Combination therapy, when two or more ICIs are given together, also have a higher risk. The other question is at what point in the course of immune therapy do we expect them to present with ICI-associated myocarditis? Is there a time frame? Sono, do you remember how many weeks prior to her presentation had Mary initiated immunotherapy? She was started on ipilimumab and nivolumab and had completed four cycles as induction therapy. She presented with dyspnea two and a half months after initiation and 10 days after her last cycle. This is usually the typical time at which myocarditis develops after initiation of ICI therapy. Median time to onset of myocarditis is around 34 days, with 80% of patients presenting within three months. But it can occur at any time during therapy. Sometimes it can even occur after stopping therapy. Ahmed, can you tell us what tests we should do first? So again, I like to think of those as the four fundamental pillars which we can later build upon. An EKG, troponin, BNP, and an echocardiogram if needed. Nearly all patients with myocarditis have an abnormal EKG. However, there are non-specific findings like sinus tachycardia, QRS or QT prolongation, conduction abnormalities, diffuse T-wave inversions, abnormal Q-waves, atrial ventricular arrhythmias, or localized or diffuse ST elevations. In reality, any subtle or new conduction abnormality in these patients should not be ignored even if they are asymptomatic because it may be a clue that leads us to the diagnosis of myocarditis. On the flip side, we have to remember that a normal EKG does not rule out ICI-induced myocarditis. Mary's EKG had shown sinus tachycardia with low voltage complexes and poor airway progression. So it wasn't entirely normal, but was not specific. The second pillar Ahmed was talking about includes troponins. Troponins are elevated in almost all cases, up to 94%. And high levels of troponin are associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes in observational studies. So they may have implications on prognosis. If you remember, Mary did not have a particularly elevated troponin. It was only 0.05. 
Third pillar is our heart failure's friend's favorite, the BNP. BNP can be elevated if the patient is volume overloaded. However, it does lack sensitivity and specificity for ICI-induced myotarditis, but nevertheless is helpful to assess how sick the patient is by putting it together in the right clinical context. Mary did have an elevated BNP in the 1000s, and she had evident signs of volume overload. And the final pillar is a transthoracic echo. An echo is usually the initial imaging test done in these patients, but what does it mean if these patients are found to have a normal EF? Sono and I recently shared another patient who was on immune checkpoint inhibitors and presented with dyspnea but had a normal left ventricular function. I was surprised to learn then that patients with normal LV function could still have immune checkpoint-associated myocarditis. You guys, I love your diagnostic four pillars for immune checkpoint inhibitors myocarditis. And I think this is applicable for just a lot of cardiovascular disease in general, and particularly for myocarditis. And, you know, within the construct of myocarditis stepping back, cardiologists will remember our myocarditis series where you can break myocarditis down into, is it infectious or non-infectious? And with the non-infectious, is it toxic or immunologic? And two special types of immune-mediated myocarditis are, of course, the immune checkpoint inhibitors-related myocarditis and transplant rejection myocarditis. But, you know, stepping back, all myocarditis may present with acute coronary syndrome type of presentation with chest pain, biomarker release, EKG abnormalities, with heart failure because of the myocardial damage and injury, and with evidence of electrical disturbance, either conduction abnormalities, bradyarrhythmias, and tachyarrhythmias. And so these four pillars help us, one, identify all of these manifestations, you know, the EKG, cardiac biomarkers, the echocardiogram, and then also are prognostically very useful. But unlike, I think particularly with immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, the sensitivity diagnostic yield of transthoracic echo, and correct me if I'm wrong, can actually be pretty low. You know, people with proven ICI myocarditis may have a normal ejection fraction and not even have a wild motion abnormality, in which case strain imaging and perhaps cardiac MRI may prove to be additive in improving the diagnostic yield. Exactly. The fact is that even patients with fulminant myocarditis can present with a normal left ventricular function. Around 50% of patients with ICI-induced myocarditis have a normal LB function. Also, among those who have major adverse cardiac events, 38% of them have a normal EF. So the point is, don't let that EF fool you. That brings me to my favorite aspect of echoimaging, speckle tracking, like Amit just mentioned. Global longitudinal strain, or GLS, is being used so much more frequently now in cardiology. Nowadays, it's recommended that patients who are at risk for chemotherapy-related left ventricular systolic dysfunction have GLS routinely done during an echo. Recently, this has been extrapolated to patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors. I will take a minute to explain in very simple terms what GLS is. When the heart contracts, the myocardium shortens in the longitudinal and circumferential directions and thickens in the radial direction. GLS expresses longitudinal shortening as a percentage, that is, change in length as a proportion of the baseline length. It's expressed as a negative number. Because GLS varies with age, sex, and LV loading conditions, defining abnormal GLS is not straightforward. However, in adults, GLS less than 16 is abnormal, more than 18 is normal, and between 16 and 18 is borderline. So if you ask me, what's your strain? Below sweet 16's a pain. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Uh, so no, I love that saying. And in my mind, the, the cutoff that I normally think about in terms of normal strain is less than negative 18, meaning more negative than negative 18. But where do you get the negative 16? The negative 16 is absolutely abnormal. So how we think about it is if it's negative 12, if it's negative 4, those are all abnormal values. Ah, very good. 
GLNs can be lower in patients with ICA-associated myocarditis, both for those with preserved and reduced ejection fraction. And a lower GLS is strongly associated with subsequent adverse cardiac events, irrespective of the MV function. GLS is a brilliant concept, Sono. Our patient Mary had a GLS of minus 3%. That is significantly abnormal. So let's summarize what we have so far in our case. Mary is a 48-year-old woman treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors for malignant melanoma who presented with a cough and dyspnea, found to be clinically fluid overloaded, has a mild troponin elevation, nonspecific EKG changes, and an echo showing severely reduced left ventricular function and an abnormal GLS. Our provisional diagnosis is ICI-associated myocarditis. This gives me the perfect opportunity to discuss our approach to categorizing these patients using the American Society of Clinical Oncology or the ESCO guidelines. There are four categories, category G1 through G4. G1 includes asymptomatic patients with mildly abnormal screening tests. Category G2 includes those with mild symptoms and abnormal screening tests. Category G3 includes patients with symptoms on minimal activity and can have high-risk features like arrhythmias, elevated cardiac biomarkers, and significant echocardiographic findings. And finally, the dreaded G4 category, those with moderate to severe decompensation, cardiac biomarker elevation to more than three times the upper limit of normal, and hemodynamic instability requiring IV medications or interventions. To summarize this for simplicity, G1 and G2 are considered stable and minimally symptomatic, whereas G3 and G4 are very symptomatic or unstable patients. Applying this to our case, Mary would fall under the G2 to G3 category because she has symptoms, has a mild troponin elevation, and significant echocardiographic findings. Next, we ordered a cardiac MRI. So CMR is the preferred test for the diagnosis of ICA-associated myocarditis. Oh yes, Sonu. It's always exciting to review cardiac MRI images with our very own cardio-oncology expert, Dr. Sarju Granatra, and that's exactly what Amatoj and I did. I totally agree. I think it is important to know the features on MRI that are suggestive of myocardial inflammation. The lake Lewis criteria are the criteria that we use for the MRI diagnosis of myocarditis. These criteria were recently modified in 2018 that improved its diagnostic accuracy. I'm in no way an MRI expert, but I'll try and keep it simple, just like I was taught. So let's get started. The three aspects of myocardial inflammation are one, edema, two, hyperemia, and three, necrosis of fibrosis. Myocardial edema is seen as in hyperintensity on T2-weighted images. Hyperemia is seen in early ganglion enhancement images, and necrosis and fibrosis are seen in late ganglion enhancement images, the LGE. These findings are usually in the mid-myocardium to the sub-epicardium in non-ischemic distribution patterns. This is pretty different from ischemia, which typically involves a sub-endocardium or is transmural. The other criteria which are considered supportive are regional or global wall motion abnormalities and systolic dysfunction and pericardial effusion. So according to the current modified Lake-Lewis criteria, if both myocardial edema and non-ischemic myocardial injury are identified, then CMR is highly suggestive of myocarditis. Having only one main criteria may still point to the diagnosis of myocarditis in the current clinical setting. The supportive criteria, when used alone, are not diagnostic of myocarditis, but may help support a diagnosis. In our patient, the cardiac MRI did not show any abnormal focus of myocardial edema on T2 imaging, but did show patchy areas of delayed enhancement in the mid-myocardium in a non-ischemic distribution, along with marked global hypotenesis and a significantly reduced systolic function with an ejection fraction of just 11%. Sounds like we had one main criteria of LGE satisfied and supportive evidence of a low EF. It's important to know that most patients with ICI-associated myocarditis have a normal LVEF on CMR, and only 46% have LGE. 
LGE on CMR is an effective tool for risk stratification and prognostication in myocarditis due to other causes. But in patients with ICI-associated myocarditis, LGE is not associated with major adverse cardiac events, at least based on a large international registry-based study. This just means that we cannot rely solely on LGE to diagnose ICI-induced myocarditis and the other parameters for tissue characterization like T1, T2, and extracellular volume mapping may need to be routinely used. As a next step, Mary had a right heart catheterization and an endomyocardial biopsy done. The right heart cath revealed elevated filling pressures with a right atrial pressure of 15 millimeter mercury, PA mean of 25 millimeter mercury, and a wedge pressure of 22. Cardiac output was calculated to be 3.8 with an index of 1.8 liters per minute per meter square by a fixed method. This was in line with our physical exam findings of fluid overload, and the patient also had a borderline reduced cardiac index. The endomyocardial biopsy eventually showed acute myocarditis with moderate interstitial lymphocytic infiltrate, mild interstitial fibrosis was seen on trichrome staining, and copper red stain was negative for amyloid. On immunostaining, the majority of the inflammatory cells were positive for CD3 and CD8. A small number of CD68 positive histiocytes were also noted. There were no giant cells. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Now we had a definite diagnosis of myocarditis related to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. It's always exciting to go down to our amazing pathology department to look at the slides ourselves. ICI-associated myocarditis and its pathologic findings are often considered to be similar to cardiac allograft rejection. This perceived similarity has been used as evidence for treating patients with ICI myocarditis with medications that have been successfully used in allograft rejection. Pathology usually shows the typical findings noted in non-ICI-associated myocarditis like a diffuse T-cell-predominant lymphocytic infiltration with a predominance of CD3, CD4, CD8, CD68 macrophages, and rarely CD20P lymphocytes, typically with myocardial necrosis or fibrosis as seen in our patient. Endomyocardial biopsy is the most specific diagnostic test for ICI myocarditis. Since ICI myocarditis has a patchy distribution, its sensitivity, however, is lowered. Yes, Ono, that's a very important point to understand. It's the clinical suspicion and overall picture that drives the diagnosis. Even before the biopsy result was back, we started Mary on steroids due to the high degree of suspicion. Prompt initiation of immunosuppressive therapy is critical for these patients. The first-line agents are corticosteroids. We should start with high-dose steroids, followed by a slow taper over several weeks. That's exactly right, Ahmed. And we should ideally start it within 24 hours of presentation because it is associated with better outcomes. In fact, it has actually been shown that low-dose corticosteroids administered early after presentation were associated with better outcomes than high-dose corticosteroids administered at a later time. This would justify the argument that we should start treatment early, even before confirming the diagnosis. Next comes the obvious question of how long should we treat her? There is really not much data on this and experts say the decision should be made on a case-by-case -case basis. But we have to think about the half-life of these medications. Ipilimumab has a half-life of 15 days and nimbalumab a half-life of 25 days. In general, the steroids should be tapered over a very long period and only after resolution of symptoms, normalization of LV function or stabilization of arrhythmias. Amitoj, tell us how Mary did. So our patient was started on intravenous methylprednisolone, 1000 mg daily for 3 days and then switched to 100 mg of oral prednisone daily. Her symptoms improved and she was discharged home on 100 mg of prednisone. Her other medications included furosemide, metoprolol succinate, spironolactone, 
and lisinopril for guideline-directed medical therapy. She had a prolonged steroid taper over five months. Repeat PET scan three weeks after discharge showed near-complete resolution of known areas of cancer. Cardiac MRI in three months showed improvement in left ventricular systolic function to 52% with mid-myocardial delayed enhancement involving the mid-inferior lateral and anterior lateral walls, reflecting chronic sequelae of myocarditis. She is continuing to be seen by oncology for cancer surveillance, but overall is doing well. I'd like to make a few detours at this point to answer two questions that may come up. What would we have done if she did not respond to the steroids? There isn't a lot of evidence in this area, but non-steroid adjunctive immunosuppressive agents such as tacrolimus or mycophenolate can be considered in biopsy-proven ICI-associated myocarditis. The other question is, can we restart immune checkpoint inhibitors in these patients if their LV ejection fraction recovers? The answer is, it depends. If the patients are in the G1 category, that is asymptomatic with mildly positive screening tests, then ICIs can be temporarily held, biomarkers and EKGs can be monitored, and we can attempt to restart ICIs under closed service. But for grade 2 through grade 4 disease, ICIs are permanently discontinued as per the current recommendations. An interesting point to emphasize here is that 75 to 80% of patients who are responding to therapy continue to show response after stopping therapy due to toxicity. So sometimes, like in our patient, there may already be a good response and restarting therapy may not be necessary. After taking care of Mary, I wondered whether immune checkpoint inhibitors had any other cardiotoxicity, and not surprisingly, they do. The two other main adverse effects are stress cardiomyopathy and pericardial disease. After exclusion of ischemia, the diagnosis of tatosubo cardiomyopathy is usually based on the clinical presentation, the ECG, cardiac biomarkers, and the typical apical ballooning pattern or some other variants on the echocardiography. And cardiac MRI can be helpful to exclude myocarditis. There is no evidence that steroids help in recovery for these patients. Guideline-directed medical therapy should be started. QT prolonging medication should be avoided. The second most common ICI-associated cardiotoxicity is pericardial disease. ICI therapy should be discontinued in this case. One important differential would be cancer-associated pericardial effusion, so fluid cytology becomes important. High-dose corticosteroids can be given as initial therapy, and colchicine and non-steroidal inflammatory drugs can be used as adjunctive treatment. Since the disease process of ICI-associated myocarditis has emerging data and is relatively rare, a lot of the information we learn today is from real-world observational and registry data as opposed to randomized controlled trials. Independent of the cancer type or stage, like we heard before, the use of ICIs are rapidly expanding. As of September 2019, there are more than 3,000 clinical trials initiated to evaluate the effectiveness of ICIs either as a single agent or in combination. However, there are several unanswered questions like, is the severity of immune-related adverse events a measure of the likelihood of a better anti-tumor response? Are there any long-term cardiac effects of immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients who survive for several years after successful cancer therapy? And I'm sure the growing number of cardio-oncology enthusiasts will help us answer these questions. Wow, guys, that was amazing. Thank you so much for such a linear and coherent teaching using Mary's case to teach us all about ICI myocarditis and some of the other cardiovascular immune-related adverse effects related to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies. And while this was so coherent in practice, this ends up being really, I think, challenging and very confusing, both because we're making really important decisions about therapies that are very important for the patient from the cancer treatment perspective, and then also just because there are a lot of overlapping symptoms 
And sometimes it's not clear what the right thing to do is. And Ahmed was teaching about pericardial disease in this context. And I remember when I was on consults as a first-year fellow, we had a patient who had lung cancer, was on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, and developed pericarditis with pericardial effusion. And it wasn't entirely clear. Was this a malignant effusion, in which case, you know, the answer would be to continue treating for the cancer? Or was this immune checkpoint with adverse event with ICI-associated pericarditis? And of course, the management would have been different. And I remember how much the team was struggling with that choice. And so, you know, in reality, these conversations are around people, individuals living with cancer and having this incredible life-saving, potentially life-saving revolutionary treatment, but having these big adverse effects, which carry with them such a high mortality morbidity, interrupting that therapeutic process. So kudos to you guys. Thank you so much for teaching us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us, Amit and Dan. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. This was really great. Thank you. This was amazing. Now for the eCPR segment, I'm going to introduce Dr. Sarja Ganatra, who's a Curry Oncologist and the founding director of the Curry Oncology Program at Lehi Health. He also serves on the ACC Curry Oncology Leadership Council Decisions Pathway Committee for Curry Oncology and on the Scientific and Research Committee of International Curry Oncology Society. One of his main research focuses has been immune therapy-associated cardiotoxicity. He's a skilled clinician, an incredible educator, and a dear mentor to all of us. Hello, everyone. I would like to thank the CardioNerds team for the kind introduction and also for giving us the opportunity to present our interesting case of immune checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis. I would also like to thank Sonu, Hamitoj, and Gonem for doing a fantastic job with case presentation and also running through differential diagnosis and the management algorithms. Before we dive into discussing cardiotoxicity of immune checkpoint inhibitors, I would like to start by saying that the introduction of immune checkpoint inhibitors can be considered as one of the cardinal achievements in the field of oncology. And these agents have revolutionized the outcomes for a wide variety of cancers where historically the prognosis was considered very poor and there were no good therapeutic options, such as our patient with metastatic melanoma. These agents work by unleashing the host immune response against the tumor cell. However, this unleashed and activated immune system can actually turn against our own organ systems as well. And this phenomenon is termed as immune-related adverse events. While this can involve variety of organ systems or essentially any organ system in our body, GI tract, endocrine glands, skin and liver are most commonly involved. However, cardiovascular system, although less commonly involved, can be associated with high degree of morbidity and mortality, and hence it is very important to recognize that. There are various forms of cardiotoxicities reported, including myocarditis, vasculitis, atherosclerosis, arrhythmia, stress cardiomyopathy, and pericardial disease. Myocarditis with ICI use or immune checkpoint inhibitor use is one of the most concerning one given associated high morbidity and mortality and can represent a therapy-limiting side effect. While the exact mechanism of cardiotoxicity is not completely understood, the presence of common high-frequency T-cell receptors in tumor and in cardiac muscle cell raise the possibility of a shared antigen targets. The incidence of ICI-associated myocarditis is unclear. Based on international multicenter registry, it is reported around 1 to 3%, and it varies depending on the type of the agent. For example, CTLA4 agents are associated with higher incidence, 
And similarly, the combination therapy such as two or more immune checkpoint inhibitor use are associated with higher incidence of myocarditis. The risk factors for developing ICI myocarditis are poorly understood, but based on this international multicenter registry, we have identified that combination therapy, diabetes, obesity, and CTLA-4 are independent risk factors for cardiotoxicity. Pre-existing autoimmune disease may also be an independent risk factor, and there may be difference between different types and classes of ICI. The clinical presentation is also varied, and there are spectrum of symptoms ranging from non-specific symptoms such as fatigue and myalgia to more specific such as chest pain and shortness of breath can present and sometimes syncope or sudden cardiac death or ventricular arrhythmias. In this international registry, nearly half of the patients with ICI-associated myocarditis ended up developing major adverse cardiovascular events, including atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, complete heart block, heart failure, cardiogenic shock, or even experience mortality. The diagnosis of ICI myocarditis is tricky to say the least because its presentation can be nonspecific and can mimic other cardiovascular illness or other general form of illnesses associated with malignancy itself and hence high degree of suspicion is required to make the timely diagnosis, especially given that it can have a rapidly progressive and fatal course. While it is reasonable to consider myocarditis in any patients on ICI and presenting with either non-specific or cardiovascular symptoms, as earlier described during the case presentation, it is crucial to have a broad differential and other potential causes should also be considered. A combination of several imaging and non-imaging tests are often required to make the diagnosis and there is not a one particular test which can rule in or rule out the diagnosis. Electrocardiogram, while is usually the first test performed in any patients with suspected cardiovascular involvement, it is important to note that this can be completely normal and it does not rule out the ICI myocarditis. Most often, even when abnormal, the findings can be subtle. Based on our registry, we have noted that QRS prolongation is noted more frequently in patients with myocarditis and hence we need to be carefully looking for subtle differences in PR prolongation or QRS duration prolongation when we are suspecting myocarditis in patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors. While cardiac troponin is one of the most sensitive tests and its increased level are noted in close to 95% of patients with ICI myocarditis in our database, it is not specific for myocarditis. However, it is important to note that troponin can have prognostic implications since the higher troponin level are associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. Echocardiogram, this is usually the initial imaging test for assessment of patients with suspected myocarditis or any form of cardiotoxicity on any antineoplastic therapy. Although patients with ICI myocarditis can develop cardiomyopathy, even in severe forms like fulminant myocarditis, they may have completely normal LV systolic function. And hence, LVEF, when it's normal, does not preclude the diagnosis of myocarditis and is not prognostic either for predicting future adverse cardiovascular events. In our registry data, we have noted that 51% of patients with confirmed myocarditis had normal LVEF, and among those who experienced major adverse cardiovascular outcomes, 38% of them occurred in patients those who had normal LVEF. So while echocardiogram can be a useful and a first test, 
it is important to recognize its limitation and normal LV ejection fraction does not rule out the diagnosis of myocarditis and it also does not necessarily help with prognostication. Emerging data, however, suggests that the use of global longitudinal strain or GLS can be useful both in diagnosis and prognosis. And based on our registry, we have noted that GLS was lower in patients with myocarditis compared with controls, and it was also helpful in prognostication and subsequent adverse cardiovascular event prediction. Cardiac MRI is more sensitive and specific for the diagnosis of ICI myocarditis and hence it's a preferred test. However, it is noted that updated Lake-Lewis criteria which are typically used for diagnosis of myocarditis to detect myocardial inflammation and edema with the use of T2-weighted images and late gadolinium enhancement images in patients with ICI myocarditis, this test may not be abnormal and in our registry data we have noted that only 46% of patients had late gadolinium enhancement on cardiac MRI when they had confirmed myocarditis and this makes it an insensitive tool for diagnosis and we cannot rely on as exclusive or a solitary test. However, tissue characterization which are novel techniques used within cardiac MRI such as T1 and T2 mapping and extracellular volume measurement increases the sensitivity of diagnosis of myocarditis. Finally, endomyocardial biopsy is one of the most specific diagnostic tests. However, it is not very sensitive given the patchy nature of ICI-associated myocarditis. Last few minutes, I would like to discuss the management options and the mainstay of management is holding immunotherapies with suspicion of myocarditis and initiating high-dose corticosteroids as soon as we suspect the disease. From our registry data, we have shown that both high-dose corticosteroids and Prompt initiation within 24 hours of presentation were associated with improved outcomes. Other immunosuppressive agents such as tacrolimus or mycophenolate have been reported in literature where they were used for corticosteroid refractory myocarditis. There is emerging evidence that novel immunosuppressive agents such as abatacept or alemtuzumab can also be helpful in management of corticosteroid refractory ICI-associated myocarditis. However, the evidence is based on case reports and series. However, I am excited to report that in near future, there will be clinical trials in this space where these agents will be examined for their utility in the treatment of ICI-associated myocarditis. Lastly, I would like to touch upon re-challenge with immune checkpoint inhibitors. ICI-associated myocarditis is typically considered a high-grade adverse event and current guidelines recommend permanent discontinuation of ICI therapy. However, patients with milder course and complete cardiac recovery may benefit from restarting ICI therapy, especially if their cancer is responsive to immune checkpoint inhibitors and if there are no other good alternative therapies. However, if the decision is made to re-challenge in any particular patient, a monotherapy with alternative agent should be used and patients should be very closely surveilled for development of any cardiotoxicity. With that, I would like to conclude that while ICI therapy has revolutionized the outcomes for a wide variety of cancers, activation of immune system by these agents can lead to various immune-related adverse events, although the overall incidence is relatively low for ICI-associated cardiotoxicity and particularly myocarditis, it is associated with significant morbidity and mortality in almost half 
the patients, those who experience myocarditis, making it a major therapy-limiting adverse event. Early recognition and prompt treatment with cessation of ICI therapy and initiation of high-dose corticosteroids are crucial to improve outcomes in patients with ICI cardiotoxicity. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.